0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lisette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman Jr. This is Lewis Lapham with The World in Time. Speaking today with the award-winning historian Brenda Wineapple about her new book The Impeachers, the trial of Andrew Johnson and a dream of a just nation. As is your custom, Brenda, you have written an extraordinarily fine book. But before we come to the telling of the tale, perhaps you can begin by setting the American scene in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War and the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. Who is Andrew Johnson, and what is the State of the Union? In the spring and summer of 1865.
1: Well, first of all, Louis, thank you very much for having me. Um, To set the stage, um, you just back up for a second and think about the Civil War, um, one of the most bloody conflicts in the histories of war, really, and certainly for the United States, where 750,000 people, men, were killed, and the number keeps increasing. Um, and in that spring, uh, the war more or less came to an end with the signing of the peace agreement at, at Appomattox. But shockingly, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln, recently inaugurated for a second term, was assassinated, as everyone knows. What's interesting to me is at that, that particular juncture A man named Andrew Johnson takes the oath of office, and he serves um, as president for three years. And we know very little about him and what happened, which is to say toward the end of his term as president, he was impeached. And that to me is shocking because here we had, as I said, a bloody conflict. Some people called it a slaughter where the country was divided north against south, south against north, where a country that had had uh, the institution of slavery thriving uh, since its inception, that institution was finally eradicated or presumably eradicated, and you have the first ever presidential assassination. So it's a crucial time in American history.
0: Johnson was... Lincoln's vice president. Yes. He'd, he'd been on the <laughs> ticket in 1864, but yes. he was a Southerner. He was from Tennessee. He mm-hmm. was a Democrat and mm-hmm. had been a slave owner.
1: Yes. He was all of those things. And Lincoln chose him um, to be his vice president or if he didn't, choose him outright. He certainly had no objections to him being chosen because Lincoln was afraid he was going to lose the war, I mean, lose the uh, election. Um, Things hadn't been going well for the North. Um, There was a groundswell of opposition uh, against Lincoln, and he thought, as many think today, the best way to win would be to balance the ticket. So he chose... Andrew Johnson, who, as you say, is from Tennessee, who is from a different party. He was a Democrat. But what made Johnson unique among Southerners was the fact that he was the only United States senator to stand up in the Senate against secession and denounce that he did not want the South to secede. So whatever else he was, he was an enormously strong Unionist, and became a military governor appointed by Abraham Lincoln in Tennessee. So he seemed to be a terrific choice. By this time, 1864, Johnson, or at this time, and by this time, Johnson had a terrific reputation, and people in the North um, were proud that here they had this outspoken Southerner on their side. Um, Lincoln's <laughs> uh, understandable human and fatal mistake was that he didn't think he was going to be assassinated. And so whatever he might have thought personally of Johnson, um, he thought he was going to serve out his term and Johnson would be kind of forgettable vice president, as many are. Um, but it obviously didn't work out that way.
0: Because very soon after Johnson's accession, which is... <laughs> April of 1865, he begins to dictate policy that is opposite to Lincoln's program of reconstruction.
1: Well, that's what's said. We, to be fair, we don't really know what Lincoln's program of reconstruction would be. There are actually competing um, ideas about that. Um, Sherman and Grant remember it one way; Stanton remembers it another way. We have some of the comments that Lincoln made in the second inaugural, uh, where he talked about mercy and healing. But in terms of one of the crucial issues, which was, uh, which were uh, the citizenship for the citizenship for the formerly enslaved and the question of black voting rights, nobody really knew where he was going to go with that. The problem with Johnson, who started well in the sense that he had a lot of goodwill from the Republicans, Lincoln's party, because during the war he had said over and over again, treason is a crime and it must be punished. So at the end of the war, the radicals, and particularly the group that were known as, um, I'm sorry, the Republicans, in particular the group that were known as radicals, today might be considered progressives, they too were heartened by Johnson's theoretical stand. The problem was when Johnson took office, Congress was not in session. And so when a few of Congress... People went to Johnson to say we should have a special session to deal with the problem of the South, which is to say what are we going to do with the 11 seceded states now that the war is over? Can they resume their place in the government? Johnson basically said, no, I don't think we'll have a special session. And he took on the um, mantle, really, of uh, reconstruction, as he called it, or reconciliation for himself, and that was outrageous because theoretically, um, to Congress falls the disposition of who's in, who, you know, who may be seated in the House and in the Senate. So here, right away, forgetting the other issues of representation, citizenship, and voting rights, you've got a struggle between the legislature and the executive branches of government.
0: He, he usurps the power of, of, the, of the legislature. <laughs> that's how
1: they felt. That's what they said. That's what they thought. So he says,
0: and, I will decide under <laughs> yeah. what terms yeah. the southern states will be readmitted.
1: And he thought he was doing well. And there were many, um, certainly in the Democratic Party, who were very glad that he was taking yeah. this role and that he was going, you know, he was using executive orders in order to say, OK, these are the terms. Um, and he pretended, and maybe if you... If you want to argue about it, um not that I do, but <laughs> that he pretended to use Lincoln's plan of reconstruction. he was he was pretending to follow in Lincoln's footsteps because that was a politically expedient thing to say, of course.
0: So what did he do? I mean, so, <laughs> so what what were the policies that he uh, approved and well, he put into first, effect.
1: first of all, what's so interesting, and and in a sense, Lincoln had said this. He basically said that the seceded states hadn't seceded because secession. Is illegal and therefore they couldn't have seceded. When Lincoln talked about these are our erring sisters, you know, and wanting to welcome them back, and when he asked, was asked, well, you know, was secession legal or not? Should they have, you know, are they welcome back? Lincoln basically said it's an academic question, and he, you know, he sort of pushed it aside. But Johnson made that the centerfold of his policy. And very outspoken uh, representatives like Pennsylvania Representative Thaddeus Stevens said to say secession is illegal and therefore they, the se- states didn't secede is like saying murder is illegal and therefore somebody who kills somebody else. Uh, didn't do it. You know, it makes no logical sense. (laughs) So so he went forward. Yeah. And what he did was um, welcome them back. He said that they could be seated in Congress. Congress didn't let that happen. And he began pardoning at enormous, um, you know, an enormous rate, the numbers of Confederates who, by proclamation, wouldn't have been allowed to take government offices or to vote. What he basically he, he gave very, very um, uh, lenient terms for their the, these states' readmission, which basically says you renounce, um, you renounce what you've done, you um, embrace the Thirteenth Amendment. You know, you abolished slavery, and Confederates who had served as high-ranking officers or uh, who had more than a certain amount of of money—former Confederates—were disfranchised. And those were the people that he allowed. You know, but he no, but he allowed
0: those people.
1: Yeah, he he re-enfranchised. He he, he uh, but basically, what happened is he re-enfranchised them. Absolutely. So the people
0: that now take power in the South, the, the Southern. States come in
1: mm-hmm.
0: on their own terms.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Essentially, he's reversing the verdict of the Civil War, mm-hmm. and 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 the Southerners who take power in the state legislatures in the South, yes, are in the state,
1: are, that's right. They are very often former Confederates.
0: They're former Confederates, and they and they and they retain their hostile attitudes toward the black
1: freed people. Absolutely. A number of northern journalists, as well as the a writer and later Senator Carl Schurz, all went down to the south on a kind of fact-finding missions or tours. Um, and what they found were appallingly uh, supremacist attitudes that, uh, for all intents and purposes, seemed to re-enslave uh, the black people of that region And, you know, shortly after Johnson took office, because of his lenient policy and because these uh, former rebels were now in office, um, there were something called black codes that were passed that prevented um, black population from marrying, serving on juries, traveling freely, making contracts, you know, basically doing it much of anything. So right. this is these were the terms in which the south was you know, rectifying itself and, as I said, sort of reinstituting slavery by another name. And, of course, the North and the radicals, but also the moderate Republicans were kind of ha- were horrified by this. Many union generals were, because even if they hadn't been anti-slavery or abolitionists, they were still appalled by the conditions that they were finding in the South, and they realized that you know that the the fruits of the war the labor of the war the blood of the war m- was shed in vain
0: because th- what the black codes i mean there's still a- there were lynchings of, of black people going were, on. Or? Yeah,
1: um, there were murders outright. Were murders I think that, I think yeah. lyn- when we think of lynching, it's a, it's a little bit later, but probably there were hangings. They weren't really but called. But there were murders. But there were murders, absolutely. People, you know, I I itemize really in you sort of horrific detail. You know, the individual. Uh, you know, so many individual cases of murder. and um the way the South and some in the northern press kind of dismissed it was to say, these are isolated incidents." And you kind of tally up the isolated incidents, and it's horrific. Then, in some of the cities, notably Memphis, and especially in New Orleans, there were what were called riots, were basically, wholesale slaughters of you know uh, black white, white, people. white
0: people shooting down black people
1: yeah yeah the the other thing that's that's important to underline in terms of Johnson's policies and his, his placing um, his own people in governorships is the question of representation in Congress, which is, you know, partly why, as I said, even moderate Republicans and many union generals are kind of horrified at what's happening. And that is because, as you know, in the Constitution, it's said that enslaved persons uh, were three-fifths of a person. That counts for the changes the nature of representation when you're now counting that yeah. population yeah. as a full person which means that the south has a has a larger demographic and right. if the people who are now being counted can't vote then basically they're they're being counted for representation but the group of people who are going to represent them are the very people who want nothing to do with them yes you know so it makes the vote whatever you think and whatever the arguments, you know, that that this was a population that had been denied the ability to read and write, why would you uh, enfranchise a black man when you won't enfranchise a white woman who can read and write? So those kinds of arguments fell short when you think of what's going on in the South and the the fact that if you get more Southerners than representing themselves in white Southerners in the House of Representatives, you've got the same situation that caused the war in the first place.
0: So you have a chaotic uh, <laughs> turmoil starting almost right away in, in 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 the summer of 1865. But then, when Congress finally does meet, right in which December, is mm-hmm. December of that year. Mm-hmm. This is when the opposition to Johnson begins to assert itself.
1: It begins slowly to assert itself. It would be, you know, it's interesting that this particular period is a three-year period. It's both very long and very short. The way in which it's very long is that, as I was saying recently in another context, that what brought us to impeachment is really a kind of slow boil in other words, it wasn't as if Congress meets and says, we've got to get rid of this guy. He's, he's, he's turning back the clock. They said, how are we going to best deal with this person who seems to be um, autocratic? Should we give him the benefit of the doubt? We don't want to alienate him. Who should we send to talk to him? Maybe we'll send a delegation from here or from there. So, so Congress was, was trying very hard, from my point of view, to work with Johnson, and to talk with him about, for example, civil rights legislation. There was a man in uh, Congress named Lyman Trumbull, who is basically not known to us now. and, And he was a moderate. And he, um, he went to Johnson and he thought he was working with Johnson on civil rights legislation. When you think of civil rights, we're not even talking about the 14th Amendment. No. Yet, You know, it's just civil yeah. rights legislation. How do you make people citizens, you know, right. just to protect them, give them due process? It seems pretty low level. A moderate Republican, you know, was in some sense conservative, was willing to do that. And he thought, he, Trumbull thought Johnson had signed on to this. And and some of Johnson's Democratic allies thought he should sign on to this. What's the big deal, really? It just buys goodwill. Johnson, when, when, when it was passed in Congress, when legislation was passed in Congress, Johnson vetoed it. And people like Trumbull, we're shocked that, right. you know, what is he doing? We, we've tried to 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 compromise, I guess would be the word today. We've tried to, you know, give him an olive branch, and he consistently seems to throw it away.
0: You talk about the three years that are both a short period of time and a long period yeah. of time. It's between December 1865 when the Congress meets and mm-hmm. takes up this question mm-hmm. and the impeachment trial, which is, February 1868. It, it's, tw- it, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. The trial those, starts in March, but those, yeah. It's, it's those April. three three years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Distinguish at the beginning between what you mentioned, moderate Republicans mm-hmm. and radical Republicans. Mm-hmm. What is the distinction? And who were some of the leading uh, voices mm-hmm. among the Radical Republican.
1: Mm-hmm. I, uh, there are two names that may s- still be familiar to a contemporary audience. I hope so, in any event. Um, in, the leader in the House of the Radical Republicans, and I'll define what they are in a minute, was Thaddeus Stevens. He was from Pennsylvania. He represented Pennsylvania in the Senate. Was the Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner? So those two can sort of use them in a sense as as figureheads for what were called the Radical Republicans. Even during Lincoln's administration, they were the um, representatives who wanted to push Lincoln toward a more um, uh, abolitionist stand. Early on in the war, he, they wanted the war prosecuted to free the slaves, not just to save the Union. That was their vision, and after the war, people like Stevens in particular thought th- this— Um, post-war period was an opportunity to reframe the country, take, for example, the plantations and land that white planters had owned and divide it up into smaller places and allow um, poor whites and uh, newly freed um, black people to have some of this land, and that would break up the kind of Oligarchy, as it was and well, is now all, called. Yeah, so all, those, yeah. that was the vision of the radical republic. Right. It, it was
0: also to, you can have the freedom to vote, but if you don't have some sort of property,
1: right. Exactly. Behind it, you exactly.
0: you, you you don't have much.
1: That's right. You know nothing at all. And these people yeah. had absolutely nothing. And you know so and 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 the feeling was you know men like stevens believed that these people had worked on the land you know that that they they in a sense owned the land ethically you know or and morally if not in terms of legal contracts in that sense so so that was a kind of over that's the overview in a sense, moderates and more conservative Republicans were, were debating whether this population should be enfranchised or not. And when they, you know, they, they certainly believed in citizenship. Um, that was part of the sort of anti-slavery movement that started the Republican Party. But people were divided about how we should move forward in the country. Right. What, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. So so that basically that that's that's the difference within the party. Later, after the impeachment, after 68, you know, during the grant administration, which is beyond where I go, but just to fill in that that Republican Party actually did split between what was then called liberal Republicans, what I'm calling moderate and conservative, and the former radicals. And liberal Republicans became the Republicans that we know of today. But that's, that's down the line. Going back to where we are right now, the question for everyone was, how do we let, as I said before, these states back into the Union? So when Congress met in 1865, a number of of representatives fr- were sent from their various states in the south one was the vice president of the confederacy alexander stevens there were a couple of confederate generals they went to washington to take their seats and congress said no way <clears throat> we're not even going to you know uh, yeah. call your name on rant, roll call because this is up to us w- we sort of set we set yeah. the terms so that was the first battle, obviously. The second battle, as I said, begins to form around legislation like civil rights, as I mentioned, or the continuation of what was called the Freedmen's Bureau, which was set up uh, toward the end of the war, Uh, for refugees, former slaves, to help them, you know, get settled education, land, possibly jobs, you know, just to sort of resettle uh, the country. and, And it needed funding. So that was legislation that was passed. Johnson vetoed it. Civil rights legislation passed. Johnson vetoed. And Um, Frederick Douglass and a delegation of uh, black men came to see Johnson and lobby for the vote. Johnson was then quoted, you know, saying these sons of bitches are out to get me and worse. So he was really becoming more and more uh, vicious even and certainly obnoxious. And in that particular sense, what started to happen – that Congress then decided we're not going to get anywhere with legislation. This is what um, uh, legislation was what, you know, um, Lincoln realized wasn't going to be good enough because legislation can be overturned. They needed an amendment, uh, and that's where the 14th Amendment came out, which is to say due process citizenship. But what's interesting about that is Johnson's against the 14th Amendment. You know, it's really, in a sense, you have to think, who's against the 14th Amendment? You know, even, even <coughs> in that day, you know, 2019, we think, oh, well, that's a no-brainer. Maybe they, maybe they weren't as enlightened. They were more enlightened than we were, many people Yes, were.
0: yes. Reading <laughs> your book, I, 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 I see that. But also, Johnson mm. is famous right from the beginning for having mm. said, this is a country for white men, and by God, as mm-hmm. long as I am president, it shall be a government for white men.
1: Well, I was withholding that for a little bit to make him a more complicated figure. You know, he stands up against yeah. secession, and he starts on a, you know, slowly, you know, pushing get back at this legislation. But the fact of the matter was... Yes, he he believed that, um, but there were also he wasn't alone. Let's face it, there no. were other people who yes. believed it. It was it was what's interesting is that there were men in Congress, it was all men, so it's men in Congress pushing against him and that particular view, which amid, which someone like Thaddeus Stevens said this country is based on equality of all people, and they found this reprehensible. So actually, underneath all of this these questions about representation, secession, civil rights, is the question of race, basically. And that's what's brewing all the way through. And that's what is at the heart, really, in a sense, from my point of view, of impeachment. But but I don't want to sort of say that up front because there are actual legislative views that, you know, or or legislative fights that are essential.
0: All right, the, and these passions uh, boil and bubble for, for for three years. What is the incident that <laughs> that gets it going toward impeachment? The the uh, tenure of office act.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Explain what that is and when that happens. I'm trying to get. Now, quickly. (laughs) More
1: to the impeachment trial. To the impeachment. Yeah, okay. Well, just to back up a little bit, the Tenure of Office Act was of dubious constitutionality because what it more or less said, and I can't quote it directly, but what it more or less said, that a civil officer who... Ha- whose position has been confirmed by the Senate cannot be fired by the president unless the Senate approves. That's sort of the simple way of putting it, I but hope. But who, who is Johnson well, trying
0: wait, to fire? Wait, wait, wait,
1: wait, wait, wait. Before I do yeah, that, okay. I want to just say that the reason it was passed, some people feel, or some people who know anything about this period, Um feel that it was passed to hint ha- to to ensnare Johnson. It wasn't passed to ensnare him and to therefore impeach him. It was passed to protect the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, who had been the Secretary of War under Lincoln, and who, along with Grant or Sherman or Lincoln himself, has to be credited with the Union victories, because he was instrumental in organizing the railroads and organizing you know, the troops, so he was a very important person. Over time, and especially during the Johnson administration, Johnson had kept many of the people in Lincoln's cabinet, and he had kept Stanton, and over time, Stanton began to really despise Johnson for what Johnson was allowing to happen in the South. Because Stanton was Secretary of War, he protected the military, which was also protected by Grant. That's important because in the summer of 1867, Congress passed several what's called Military Reconstruction Acts in order to protect Black men going to the polls and white Republicans to voting. There had been so much violence in the South, and one of the, mili- one of the Reconstruction Acts actually enfranchised the former black slaves and and free blacks men in the South, but they may not be allowed to vote. So, Stanton was protecting the military, which was protecting the polls and making sure that these people who had formerly been disenfranchised were now able to register. So Johnson wanted to get rid of Stanton because he wanted to undo these laws. So Congress, to get back to the Tenure of Office Act, Congress passed Tenure of Office Act, which theoretically prevents Johnson from firing Secretary of War Stanton. But Johnson... <laughs> fires the Secretary of War in direct violation of this act. You know, more or less, I won't get into all the details, but he basically violates the law. And at that particular juncture, when uh, Congress wants to keep Stanton in, you know, the Senate wants to keep Stanton in office, and Stanton himself won't even leave the office, uh, um, that is enough to actually bring the pot to boil over. In other words, at that juncture, the House votes overwhelmingly to impeach President Andrew Johnson because... It was easy to see something that he'd done. He violated a law. He broke the law. He not only was flouting Congress, they had passed this law. He was in direct um, violation of them. So,
0: Before we start the trial, mm -hmm. describe in some detail the character and personality of of Johnson.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, as I said earlier, uh, Johnson was a man. He was considered in his own time in, in Tennessee as a, den- a demagogue. He loved speaking. He loved talking on the stump. He was he he came like Lincoln from poverty. He was self-made in the sort of terms of the 19th century, kind of pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He was able to Change classes insofar so far as you can in the South through politics, and he was very single-minded. That single-minded quality um, was a kind of heroic quality when it came to standing against secession. But that same single-mindedness, if you kind of turn the dial a little bit, is a is a kind of obstinacy.
0: So he's stubborn. He's, he's obstinate. Stubborn. He, he's also. You know,
1: As Charles can, Sumner called them, ignorant, pig-headed, and perverse.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, he didn't know the alphabet until he was 20 years old, right?
1: Well, or theoretically, like we, we, I think he, I think that's an exaggeration. Um, I think he, learned, but I mean, he wasn't. He was unschooled. He was you unschooled. Know, he, was un, he was completely unschooled. He was an autodidact, but he firmly believed. Um, kind of poignantly and horribly enough in the, in the Constitution. And his reasons for not wanting the South to secede is because the way he and many read the Constitution was that it protected slavery. And so slavery was better off within the country than than you know by uh, then. and it was endangered if the South left it. And in fact he was right. So so he was also, He was also a man who believed that if he could take his views, if he could take his feelings, if he could take his bitterness to the people, and he called the people my people, and speak directly to the people, um, then everyone would understand him. Um, So even during his impeachment trial, he wanted to go and make his case directly to the people, um, uh, he wanted to speak in the Senate, and his lawyers, who um, were quite brilliant, actually, um, really muzzled him. They said, you really better not, because for the three years before, he had been, you know, going around, making speeches. People thought he must be drunk, but he really wasn't. He was, he was, um, he was. I mean, he was it, it, not yeah.
0: too different from, from uh, <laughs> Trump's Twitter's.
1: Uh, no, it was a good thing that in the 1860s there was no such thing as. But Twitter. I mean, it's the same uh, sort of. It's the same uh, sort. Of, it, it's the same sort of um, uncensored, um, off the cuff, uh, angry vituperation and degradation of other people. He would, he he, when he was campaigning against the Fourteenth Amendment, he was trying to get states not to ratify it. He would say things like, "I uh, hang Thad Stevens, hang Charles Sumner." Hang Wendell Phillips, who is a well-known, outspoken, radical, and, and formerly an abolitionist. I mean, Somewhere, it's outrageous yeah, right. when you think about it. Right. He's That's calling true. for their execution. I mean,
0: right. right, it's so.
1: hardly decorum. And you, if you associate, which you prob, I mean, I don't know if you, people do. I think sometimes when you see it in the movies, people associate the 19th century with decorum and, you no. know, long dresses and things. No. This is not exactly... Um, uh, etiquette. <laughs> no, and, it's and, abuse. and
0: <laughs> the politics in, in in Washington in those yeah. days, the uh, it was as much, if not more, of a swamp than than it, <laughs> it than it is now.
1: Well, it was literally a swamp because a the, lot the, of it has a lot of but, you know there's a malaria and it was you know dusty and dirty and there was mud in the roads and also, yeah. <laughs> But also, you
0: know, degrees in terms of, of
1: corruption, a,
0: uh, corruption on both. It's hard aisle. for
1: me. Um, yes, there was corruption. Of course, there was corruption. Corruption's not new to our government, um, sorry to say. I mean, Grant's grants administration was, you know, was tarred with the corruption brush, but certainly there was much more corruption. Johnson, it was always said, um, and it's probably true, was was honest in that particular way. I don't think he took bribes directly um, hard to know really because favors are a form of bribery all right,
0: all right so, the, so now the,
1: we've got the impeachment the right impeachment
0: is february 1868 That's and the right. impeachment and, and it, it, first it's the, the impeachment in, in the house and then the trial in the goes senate goes on
1: in the senate so, it's a complicated thing. You know, people – I mean, recently impeachment has been sort of on everybody's mind or, you know, in, in, on, in, in the papers all the time, the questions about it. But but it's really a two-fold process. Um, impeachment uh, – you know, the vote to impeachment happens in the House. You need – You need 50% of the House. But you need two-thirds of the Senate to acquit, and the trial takes place in the Senate. And the Constitution, which gives the kind of broad outlines of what is an impeachable offense and how it should be uh, tried, doesn't really give a lot of information about how, how this process should be executed. It says that the chief justice shall preside over the trial in the Senate, so the man at, the the chief justice in 1868 is a man named Salmon Chase. He'd been Lincoln's treasury secretary. Um he w- was formerly a democrat. Um he was a well-known anti-slavery person back in his day in Ohio. But he wanted to be president. He'd run against Lincoln and he still had his eye on the prize, which means there's a kind of conflict of interest right, right at the top, you know, in yeah. the in the trial itself. So that's complicated. Then the questions of how the trial is is going to, you know who's going to be able to speak, who's going to be able to call witnesses. All of these issues are something that has to be hammered out. It's hammered out, you know, fairly quickly, but it takes a few weeks because the Senate has to decide if it's still a Senate, which is a legislative body, or now if it's a court. And if it's a court, there are different legal rules. So these are very interesting questions that were interesting to senators and lawyers but certainly don't come down to us today as as interesting
0: but it's also a, a, a big popular news event I oh mean, my I goodness mean, yes everybody it, wants to be there I mean they, they were know.
1: giving out tickets so, I mean because because everybody in Washington wanted to go and people kind of came in from other places um, to attend this trial I mean in a sense, it was the trial of the century, and a century where was yeah. a lot of trials. So, so there were color-coded tickets, so a senator got a certain number of tickets, and, you know, you might have green for Monday and red for Tuesday and orange, and the Capitol Police were around the, you know, around the Senate, you know, in, in all the doorways checking tickets and also making sure nobody had explosives. I mean, this is yeah. in 1868. It's kind huh. of remarkable when you think about it. And, um, and of course, uh, journalists were all over the place. They were, you know, kind of rubbing elbows and kind of pushing each other into the gallery. So it Mar- was a Mark big Twain was, event. Was
0: Mark Twain there?
1: Mark Twain was there for a little bit, but then he left town. He's, he's I think he had enough of a direct... Politics. I mean, he was, he was a wonderful, wonderful writer, and he was right. an early, from my point of view, radical and a terrific reporter with a real jaundiced eye and a great sense of humor. <clears throat> and he, was, he, he really liked Thaddeus Stevens, um, but he really thought that, that Congress, w- you know, he was surprised that they finally voted to a- impeach because he thought they were all moral cowards, you know, that they had waited this long. They waited for Johnson to step on a statute when to people like, say, Stevens or Sumner or, or, um, or, or Twain even, Johnson had so clearly abused power. Earlier that he should have been impeached far early, but you couldn't get the votes, really.
0: In a passing note, among other journalists, Mm is Georges Clemenceau.
1: I know. Isn't he amazing?
0: (laughs) Young French journalist who subsequently becomes the premier of France.
1: (laughs) (laughs) During World War I. I mean, it's incredible.
0: Anthony Trollope is also there.
1: Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Describe briefly Stevens, because he's the most eloquent and and and, uh, he's in the House and, and he's ill, he actually yes. has to be
1: carried in carried
0: in, in a chair.
1: I know. He's very ill by this time. Um, Thaddeus Stevens had been a, a long-standing, outspoken member of the House of Representatives, as I said, from Pennsylvania. You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> There's a character in Birth of a Nation um, that was based on Thaddeus Stevens, <clears throat> and you know it's th- supposed to be based on Thaddeus Stevens for two things. Thaddeus Stevens had a club foot, and so he had to wear a special boot, and he was, you know, he walked with a limp. Um, so there was that. And also Thaddeus Stevens had uh, what was then called a mulatto, um, mixed-race housekeeper who may have been his mistress. So there was that. And that he's portrayed in Birth of a Nation, and in history at that particular time, as a diabolical, uh, fanatic person you know, whose clubfoot was a sign of the devil. He, in fact, was um, uh, an outspoken, frank, far-seeing visionary um, who wanted, as I said earlier, the war prosecuted to free the slaves, to make a... A more just, equal country who had fought very, very hard within Congress for many, many years to make that happen, and who now, at the final trial of impeachment for of Andrew Johnson, he was there, but he but he didn't speak very much by that time because it was very difficult for him. But he was there, and he was one of the firmest impeachers because when the 11 articles or the first nine articles of impeachment were drawn up, he thought they were drawn too narrowly. In other words, they focused too much on the Tenure of Office Act. He wanted a larger Uh, the larger issues, the issues having to do with abuse of power, the issues of having to do with inequities. Um, He wanted those issues to be the ones that would finally bring Johnson down. So he he was there during the trial, and when Johnson was acquitted, which is itself another story, he was, of course, um, I, I don't want to say heartbroken, but but dismayed, but not surprised by the outcome.
0: We're going to get in a moment to your sense of the outcome, which is somewhat like Stevens, I think. But <laughs> the uh, first of all, quickly, the the vote in the in the House is <laughs> 149 to something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then it goes to the Senate. Mm-hmm. And, how does that vote work? How did how did that happen?
1: You know, Wendell Phillips, who was standing, as I said, as a sort of longtime abolitionist and a sort of silver tongued orator, standing outside of the machinations of Washington, but always watching what was going on, said both cynically and realistically that he didn't think the impeachment vote in the House would ever have happened if heads hadn't been counted in the Senate and if it hadn't been guaranteed that Johnson would be convicted. The fact that he wasn't came really, in a sense, as a surprise to many, because I think it was assumed that, that the votes were there, but it was a fraught political time. We're not far away from the national conventions. The Republicans are looking towards 68, and they're looking for to put Grant in office. That's one issue. Um, And and that's important to them. The second issue is that if Johnson were removed from office, there was a senator named Benjamin Wade who would then become the, the sitting president during this interim time. And there were many Republicans, more moderate especially, who were deeply afraid of Wade, who had been a longtime abolitionist. He's a longtime... Uh, women's suffrage. He was a long-time outspoken uh, progressive. So they didn't want him in office and they didn't want to have Grant saddled with him as vice president which they would have had to have taken. So there were reasons that the seven Republicans who voted to acquit Johnson sort of turned the tide. Um, were wobbling. They, you know, they had mixed motives for sure. And the interesting thing: the, the person who singled out Edmund Ross of Kansas, who cast the deciding vote to acquit Johnson, um, he's a person whom Kennedy, John, J.F. Kennedy, and his Book Profiles and Courage in 1957, singled out in a chapter as a courageous man because he cast the deciding vote to keep Johnson in office when these so called diabolical radicals like Thaddeus Stevens from Birth of a Nation, not the real Thaddeus Stevens, mm-hmm. yeah. were trying to push him out. In fact, Edmund Ross got a lot of favors. Uh, and he, you know, for doing what he did, and he really didn't want to lose his seat, and he he kept importuning after the vote Johnson for lots of different favors. So well, there was a lot of money and yes, favors sir. that were changing hands. I mean, too. And,
0: and the vote the vote was thirty five to nineteen.
1: It was very close.
0: Very close. I mean, if there had been thirty six, that would <laughs> have been two thirds.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So the
1: <laughs> so Ross the, comes the, out.
0: The the vote, the nineteenth vote, is, is uh, an important
1: one. Yeah, it was a very very important one, and nobody knew until the last minute. Although there were operatives who were sending telegrams and saying, you know, we think we have it in the bag, you know, and if we had, you know, and, and there was another very outspoken, very colorful character named Benjamin Butler, who was one of the. Uh, members of the House who prosecuted Johnson, um, and himself a kind of, as I said, colorful, complicated person, who said after the vote was taken, you know, it's interesting that they had, that they, the opposition, had just enough, you know, to keep Johnson in office. So he, he launched his inve- an investigation after the, after the acquittal to try to find out what happened, but nobody was really going to talk.
0: Let's now come to the last three mm. pages of your own book, Barbara, okay. where you talk about your mm-hmm. conclusion. How do you see it as as a... Uh, you say that in 1868 the situation was far more serious than the ones that s- surrounded Nixon's and, and uh, Clinton's impeachment. And, and you say that although it failed, it also worked. And... and how do you uh, how do you sum it up?
1: Well, um, <laughs> Johnson kept his job. That's absolutely true. Um, and it's but it's also true that the way I see what had happened was that a group, a representative group, because I don't think these were the only people i mean i, I don't think the, these people were alone i think they did represent something very very possible and that they believed that it was preferable even necessary to impeach johnson maybe to convict him and remove him from office it was it was it was most necessary to do that even if he was acquitted, because it makes a kind of statement about the way the country needed to rethink itself and um, and its future. Moreover, what impeachment implied, and I think this is often lost, was that it was orderly. It was mandated by the Constitution. Um, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't a partisan last. Di- you know, it wasn't a partisan hysterical uh, moment in American history. It was a last-ditch uh, effort to. Uh, as I said, to to inspire the country, really, to suggest that if we make mistakes, there are ways of rectifying those mistakes and that we can rectify them uh, ideally uh, and without a war. And and I think it did uh, proceed in just that particular way because what it did was also, offer a warning about the policies that Johnson and people like Johnson uh, wanted to take, and what it what it implied for the future. So, so in a sense, I think that the process itself worked. Um, these people who undertook impeachment, they they knew what the consequences might be, and they were they were willing to take those consequences because of a a long term uh, commitment. To a better, more perfect union.
0: But we still haven't reached that point. I mean, I mean, after <laughs> after, you know, the, I mean, we get to the election of eighteen seventy-six, and, and mm-hmm. the uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. keeps in place the Johnson policies. Of,
1: well, he restores them in a sense, yeah. yeah. yeah because what he does is he basically boots the military out of the South. And it was in a sense to prevent that from happening that from my point of view, the impeachers had been working very hard and that they had accomplished it. When you think they did accomplish, I mean, there was a lot that was accomplished. The 13th Amendment was ratified. Um, The 14th Amendment was passed. Civil rights legislation was passed. The Reconstruction Acts were passed. I mean, that's remarkable, yes, really. right. And they called Andrew Johnson to task, and and I think that's really important because they were making a statement. They say we're going to call him to task. We we know we may not. When we know we may not get what we want, but that should not prevent us from speaking out and speaking loudly about what it is that we represent. He doesn't have to represent the future; we can represent an alternative.
0: Final question, which I can't <laughs> help asking you, given, yeah. given our present circumstances in Washington, I yeah. mean, uh, would you say the same thing about the uh, impeachment of? Mr. Trump?
1: <laughs> I suppose I should be prepared for this question, and I never am, and I think it's because I'm basically ambivalent. Part of me thinks, thinks, yes, absolutely, because it makes a statement, it makes a stand, and imagine what it would be like um, to not impeach uh, or not try to impeach um, uh, Donald Trump if, in fact, he wins in 2020 and, and nothing was done to to alter that or his course. By the same token, I, I am mindful of a situation that there exists now that didn't exist in 1868, which was in 1868 the Republicans assumed that they had the votes, and we can't assume now that we have the votes in the Senate. You know, so Wendell Phillips was right. These people weren't going to do it if they didn't think they could win in any event. So as a kind of um, pyrrhic statement, perhaps, yes, you go ahead. You know, it's interesting. There's There are two different lines of thought. Even though we talked about Stevens, this is kind of enormous which he was you know a powerful radical he was a pragmatist and um and ultimately he was very um concerned with getting as much possible um, and making compromises. So when there were compromises in the Fourteenth Amendment, he wanted to go much farther, um, and it didn't. He was willing to vote for it. Charles Sumner, on the other hand, was a was a purist and an idealist, and he often seemed to be an obstructionist because he wanted to prevent legislation from passing that wasn't perfect. And it's between those two poles that I find myself falling, whether to be along the lines of the so-called pragmatists or along the lines of Sumner and the purists. Meantime, I would say one thing, and that is one of the things that gets lost, and I don't think we talked about, which was in the run-up to the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, much was given to the Judiciary Committee, partly to bury the idea of impeachment, but also to investigate Andrew Johnson and find grounds for impeachment that were unassailable. They didn't find those grounds, and it was Johnson who provided them by violating the Tenure of Office Act. But my point is this. My point is that the Judiciary Committee, then and now, has a function, a very important function, and it's an investigative function. And when it's charged to look, um, because of an impeachment ongoing, an impeachment is a threat, when it's charged to look into matters of presidential wrongdoing, I mean, I think that's really important, and it seems to me that was the way to go, and it is the way to go.
0: Another way to go (laughs) is to read your truly (laughs) wonderful book. Thank you. Brenda.
1: It's lovely. Thank you. Thank
0: you very much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Brenda, Wineapple, author of the new book, The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson, and The Dream of a Just Nation. Thank you. Thank you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.